Well, don't we all love it when God does something, right? That you can, you can kind of, God, that was the most pitiful clap I've ever heard. Let me try it again. Don't we all love it when God does something? Much, much better. So it was so good. Craig came up to me, a guy in our church came up to me between services and said, hey, I got to tell you, my cancer's all gone. I love hearing those stories. This week I got another uh, story about uh, they were praying for this guy, and at the exact same time, Ted sent an email or text over. Simon was at the prayer wall. He randomly pulled, uh, didn't even know who it was, just pulled a, a prayer request out of the wall, started praying for him. It was the same guy that they were talking to. Now, let me tell you, there's 80,000 prayer requests on that wall. Now, if you want to do statistics, what's the chance of that happening? It's zero, right? It really is. It's just, it just doesn't happen. And think about like this. Everything that God does, he does with a purpose, now, sometimes we miss the purpose because we're too consumed with what's happening in our life, but the purpose is God's working purposes in your life. He's arranging circumstances, bringing people into your, into your zone, into your, into your life for a reason. And if you're just, well, just be attentive to what God's doing. So, what, God, what are you doing in this moment? This seems a little bit unusual. There must be something going on in this moment. And, and ask God to give you spiritual eyes to see what's really happening. Because sometimes we just we, we work so much in natural world that we just think, oh, isn't that neat? Or what a coincidence? Or how nice was that? Instead of going stepping back and going, God, are you saying something in this moment? And if you think about it, that is what the Bible is all about. It's all about God doing something, bringing people together in a certain situation and circumstance in order to further the kingdom, to bless those people, to bring encouragement and life to them, and to give them reason for hope. That's really what the Bible's about. Say, so what's the Bible about? It's about that. It's about God interacting in your life in such a way that your life becomes markably different and better, and so, but it, so does everyone else around you. Now, when we come to this Sunday, it's called Palm Sunday, and uh, as we, we celebrate, this is really uh, maybe with Christmas the holiest week of the year. And it's a holy week because this is the beginning of the end and the beginning of Jesus. Now, here's what I mean by that. It's the beginning. It marks the time when he is literally called king, and he doesn't stop people from acknowledging him as being king. It doesn't happen any time in his ministry. They call him king as he rides into Jerusalem, and he doesn't silence those around him because now is the public declaration, I am the king. And it makes it very unique. It's also very unique because it marks the last week of his earthly life as we would know that in those first 33 years. So now he comes to an end of all earthly ministry uh, from a physical standpoint, and now he's going to, to face the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension to the Father and the giving of the Holy Spirit so that we're not left without the presence of God. In fact, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes in you in those moments, you will do greater things than I did because the Spirit of God is in you and with you. Now, think about that. So God says it's not going to be uh, anything less. It's going to be even greater than it was before because all of us have those moments where we think, wouldn't it have been great to walk with Jesus in that day? And indeed it would. But he said, I'm giving you even better days. I'm giving you even more power. I was doing most of the work then. You're going to do most of the work now. 
because I'm going to work in you and through you to accomplish some great things. So today, let me tell you where we're going to go with this. We want to uh, begin to, to help you to understand New Testament scriptures and why they are a fulfillment of what God spoke hundreds of years before. That's called pr prophetic fulfillments. And so the Bible is filled with that. In fact, of Jesus, there's more than 300 prophecies that speak of his coming and his second coming, one of which was fulfilled in the Scripture we're going to look at today. And we're going to see multiple layers of that. So I want to take you to John chapter 12, uh, first of all, with the word Hosanna. And Hosanna is really a Hebrew word that means, Lord, save us. When they cried out, Hosanna, they said, God, save us. God, save us. That's the first thing that you, that's the, the greatest thing you can ask God to do when you first realize there is a God is, God, would you save me? Because I know that I need saving. I know that without you, I don't have anything going for me in the eternal realm. I need you to save me. So listen to what it says. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They acknowledge him right there in that moment, the King of Israel. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, isn't it interesting that our king would ride on a donkey and not a horse, not a, not a, a, a chariot, but he would come in on a donkey? It's kind of interesting because that's not the way I think of kings. Is it yours? But remember, every detail is exactly the way God wanted it to be put into place. Jesus is called the son of David meaning he traces his lineage back in terms of his right to rule to King David. There was another son of David, and his name was Solomon. Guess what Solomon did? At the announcement of his kingship, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it was a picture of the coming king. Now, donkey's kind of an interesting character. We had, uh, we had one in our Christmas program along with sheep. I don't know if I've ever laughed so hard in my life. Uh, but anyway, um, but the donkey, you know, you look at it and go, it's, it's just an interesting creature of God. But there's also something very interesting that God would have chosen a donkey for Jesus to ride in on facing his own death on the cross. Let me show you a couple of pictures. Every donkey has on its back a cross. I did a lot of research on it, trying to find out why is this the case. Nobody seems to know. Now, just keep that one up for a minute. No one really seems to know, they, they, but they all say it's all somehow woven in just to the DNA of that donkey. And they may be a little bit different shape. They may be a little bit, but there's, it's unmistakably a cross. Now, isn't it interesting that God would say, I'm going to take this animal with a cross on it, I'm going to put the Savior who's going to go on a cross, and he's going to ride in because his throne is not going to be an earthly throne of gold. It's going to be a throne on a cross. He's going to literally rule mankind by the death. Because he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. And as a reminder, I'm going to bring in humility. My king comes in humble. He comes as a servant to, in order that he can be your savior. Amen? Amen. Now let's go to Luke chapter uh, 19. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
and some of the Pharisees called uh, to him from the crowd. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and uh, they tended to be very religious. And I mean that in not the best sense of the word. And listen to what they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these uh, should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So here's what's happening. They don't like the fact that they're calling Jesus, that, that people are calling Jesus king. They don't like the fact that he claims to be the Messiah. And they're trying to silence the praise that's given to God. Now, in other cases, remember, Jesus would heal someone. He would deliver someone, and he would say, don't tell anyone what, what's happened here. Don't mention my name. Don't be talking about me. But in this instant, everything changes. Now the kingdom is changing course before our very eyes. And he says, I could do that. I could tell them to be quiet. But if I did, all of creation would declare the glory of God. All of creation would, would acknowledge me as the king of the earth. And I don't know about you, but I don't want the stones to cry out. I want to cry out and say glory unto God in the highest. Amen? Give him praise. Give him glory. You see, in that gathering on Palm Sunday, there were two different crowds and two different responses. There was one crowd that said, we are the followers of Christ, save us. There was a second crowd, and that was the crowd of spectators, and they said, crucify him. All of mankind is divided into two different classes of people, those who say, save us, and those who say, crucify him. In other words, when they were saying crucify him, they weren't saying for our redemption. They were saying crucify him because we don't want him in our life anymore. We're going to get rid of him. It was all of hell that was clapping their hands with glee as Jesus was crucified, only to be surprised three days later when he rose from the dead. Which crowd are you in? Save us, crucify him. Jesus is a king, but he's king of peace and not of war. Jesus was always emphasizing this idea, if my servants were of this earth, they would pick up swords and fight. But he talked about another kingdom. It was a kingdom of peace. Let's go back in our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9, and let's see a little bit of the origin of this prophetic word that would not only lead us to King Jesus, also talk about how he would come in and why he would come in. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming. To you he is just, having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there we see the prophetic word. This is what part of what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah more than 400 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Now let's go to Luke chapter 19. A lot of scriptures here today, but I want you to get the background. I want you to see what's going on. Luke chapter 19, go into the village, he tells his disciples opposite you, where you enter, and you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever sat. Loose it, bring it here, and if anyone asks, why are you losing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now let's just put that in today's language. Your car's sitting out front. A few guys drop, pull up. You're watching on your ring screen, and they get in there, and they hotwire your car, and as they're pulling out, you say, hey, wait a minute, that's my car. So, and they say, no, the Lord has need of it. Yeah, that's 911 call. That's really the equivalent of what was happening here unless God was doing something. 
I remember as a, as a young Christian reading this scripture, and I'm going to give you the next part of it because now we're going to see how it actually played itself out. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set, uh, and set Jesus on him. Now, now think about what just happened. The guy can go, wait, no, you can't do that. That's my colt. Are you going to bring it back? What was happening in that moment was a supernatural intervention of the Spirit of God that was arranging the circumstances in order to accomplish what God had set in motion. Do you realize what happens in your life every day, whether you realize it or not, is that God is arranging situations in order to accomplish a will in your life that you wouldn't believe if told? Sometimes if you're just listening with spiritual ears, somebody's saying something to you that was prompted by the Spirit of God for you, and if you listen well with the right kind of mindset, you're going to hear God's Word coming to you. You're going to hear a direction given to you by someone else. Because God is doing that for every one of his children. God has this marvelous plan. It's not reserved for a few. It's for all of us. All right, so now I want to take you to this next part. He's king, but of king of what? Not just of Israel. He's king of the world to the very ends of the earth. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 10. He said, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Now, here's what he's saying. War, there's coming a point at which war is going to end. Conflict is going to end. I'm going to bring this to an end, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Peace to the nations. Right now, the nations are in an uproar. There's always tension brewing somewhere, isn't there? But there comes, they're coming a point in the life and the ministry of Jesus where he's going to speak peace to the nations. And then it says, his dominion shall be where? From the sea to sea to river to the ends of the earth. We can look forward expectantly that this Jesus is going to rule from sea to sea to the furthest ends of the earth. He will be the king, Jesus, that we acknowledge. And there's a shift happening in our kingdom. You see, the shift is happening right here on Palm Sunday. On this, on this week, this holy week, there's a kingdom shift happening. And kingdom shifts happen, uh, they seem sudden, but they're really well, well predicted by God in his word. Look what happens here in Matthew 21 and verse 10. When he had come into Jerusalem, now remember, he's riding the donkey, comes in Jerusalem, and here's how it's described. All of the city was moved. Now notice I put the Greek word up there. Does it look familiar? It's where we get our word seismic. It's literally saying it was like an earthquake hit Jerusalem. When Jesus rode in, everything shifted. It's about a week ago we had a, an earthquake at 5 a.m. I don't know how many of you felt that earthquake. I felt it, woke up, knew the end of the world was coming. It was only 3.5 in California. We call that a massage. But I knew it. I was alert, and I, and I thought of this scripture because when that earthquake hit, it got my attention. It was that kind of suddenness, that kind of radical shift when Jesus rode in on this moment. This didn't happen at any other time. There was not this kind of shift that happened at any other time. This word is reserved there for this time for him. It shifted. The kingdom shifted. Things are changing. Do you realize that in God's plan there are many shifts that take place? 
Sometimes we know they're happening. Sometimes we don't know. When Israel became a nation in 1948, that was a shift, a fulfillment of a scripture, many scriptures about the coming age that got, we're living in today. It says there was a moving, and they said, who is this? Jerusalem is crowded from visitors, from pilgrims all around the world. The city would be packed at this time of year. And all of a sudden, the city said, who is this? Who is this? So the multitude says, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. You know, I looked, and there's another time that word is used in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26. It says, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more will I shake not only earth, but also heaven. You know what God is about doing? He's about shaking up things on earth. You ever wondered why your, your life sometimes seems shaken? Things, the shaking going on, say, I don't know what's going on here. I just feel like there's a lot of shaking, a lot of, a lot of turmoil, a lot of things I don't understand going on. Do you ever stop to think maybe God is shaking something so he can bring you back to an understanding of what he's up to in your life? Shaking isn't always bad. Disruptions aren't always bad. It's what you do with those disruptions that can become bad. But God says, not only am I going to shake earth, I'm going to shake up heaven as well. Yet once more, he said, I will shake the earth. Can you say with me, shake my world, God. Shake my world and let the fire of God fall. Shake my world, God. Change up everything that I might love you with all my mind, my heart, my soul, and my strength. Shake my world, God. Let the fire of the Spirit fall on me. Shake my world, God. Let the gifts that you've given me, let them be released on the earth. Shake my world, God, that you get the glory almighty that you deserve. Amen? Can you say with me, shake my world? You know, isn't it funny? Sometimes people are afraid to say this to God. God, just do whatever you need to do in my life to make me more like you because you're afraid he'll do it. Right? Can I tell you this? God doesn't need you to say that to do that. He's not operating on your permission. He's operating according to his plan. And when God begins to shake, he'll shake. And what you want to do is just say, I'm ready, God. Just bring it on to me, the king of the world, the king to all the ends of the earth. And so we see a shift in his dominion. There's a dominion that Jesus had while on earth that he, he throttled back while he was on earth that he would, he would lunge forward with at the resurrection. And this shift in dominion is really interesting. We're going to see it in the future in Revelation 15.4. Listen to it. For all the nations shall come and worship before you. Did you hear it? There's the nations again. All of the nations are going to come and worship. Well, we know today enough about the world that we know nations aren't worshiping Jesus. So what's going to happen? There's a shift going to happen in the future, a shift in dominion before you. For your judgments have been made manifest. What changes the nations? It's the judgment of God. Do you know that when God brings judgment to us, we get better? My wife and I always talk that our kids were always better after they got punished. Have you ever noticed that in children? And it's almost like we, we kind of jokingly said, you know, we should just punish them once a week, whether they need it or not. Just be better kids. Can you relate to me, parents? Your heavenly father's the same way. He says, you know what? You are always better when I bring a little judgment on you right? 
Do you realize that there's coming for all Christians what's called the judgment seat of Christ? And here's what it amounts to. You'll, only the Christians will be there, and God will examine every part of your life, and he will examine it according to the deeds done in the body. That is, how have you functioned as a Christian? They'll all be on display, and they will be examined by fire, so to speak. That is, the things that have eternal value, which are called in Scripture gold, silver, and precious stone, they will remain. The things that are just hay, wood, and stubble, they will be consumed. That is, you'll suffer a loss on that. So the emphasis of Scripture is always treasure in heaven. Treasure on earth is fine if you use it well, but treasure on earth is always, in heaven is always the emphasis. Why? Because it has an eternal weight that has some value in heaven. I don't know exactly what the value is of treasure in heaven, but God says we need to have that. So the question we have to ask ourselves, am I earning treasure in heaven on a regular basis? Is my motive pure? Am I serving? Am I giving? Am I living out my life as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or am I trying to find the easiest path I can? Wouldn't it be a tragedy to have an easy stay and say, I just I got, I got out of everything I could get out of in terms of following Jesus except going to heaven on earth, and I get to heaven and I find out I have no nothing to trade with, nothing to position me with in eternity? Wouldn't that be the saddest words of tongue or pen? And guess what? You don't have to make that choice to not have that. You can make the choice right now to say, I'm going to lay up for myself treasure in heaven. I want to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I want to live out my life loving him with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and my strength. Because if you live, if you live to be 100, it would be a great life. But what is 100 compared to eternity? Just a dot, just a speck, if you will, in eternity. How about this? Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So God is going to oversee the nations. He's going to oversee the kingdoms. This may be a different way that God is dividing up eternity. Who knows? God will show us in his day. But also know that he came to set people free by the blood of the covenant. Do you realize that the reason why you're forgiven is because of the blood of Christ? You see, I deserve death because of sin. Jesus said, I'll pay the price for you. It is by my blood you're going to be cleansed. That blood is called a covenant. You know what that means? That's God's arrangement with you. God says, I'm going to make an arrangement with you that my blood and my covenant is good, and I'm no, you're, you're, my blood is going to continually cleanse you from all sin. But look what is prophesied in Scripture. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free. Anybody here ever been in, I don't mean literal prison. I don't want to, how many of you deserve to be in literal prison? I'm just kidding. Okay, let's talk about prison for a bit, okay? How many of you have ever been prison to your own thoughts? Anybody here, just, you're just a prisoner to your own thoughts? How about prisoner in finance? You just like, I just feel like I'm in debtor's jail. You see, we all have prisons we live in, right? And they're very confining. They look like this. We can't get out. We're trapped in a prison. But I want to suggest a different kind of prison, and that's one where you can get out of. In fact, you have complete freedom in this pr prison, and this prison is called a prison of hope. Let me show you in Scripture what it says. 
and I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double unto you. Here's what he says. You can be a prisoner of hope. You can be chained to hope. And everywhere you go, you are chained to hope. It doesn't matter how difficult and how, how hard things get in life, you always have hope. How are you doing? I'm chained to hope. I'm prisoner of hope. You don't have to fall back into ingratitude, in discouragement, in entitlement, or anything else because you're a prisoner of hope. Everything in your life can be falling out around you, but guess what? You have hope because the God of all hope has come to live his life in you and through you. Give him the glory, amen? A prisoner of hope. How are you doing today? I'm a prisoner of hope. You go, what are you? I'm a prisoner of hope. I checked in. I voluntarily offered to become a prisoner of hope. You know, years ago, there was a group called the Moravians. And the Moravians were so committed to winning the world for Jesus Christ. In fact, they had a prayer meeting that had 24-7. It lasted over 100 years. The Moravians were so committed that during the slave trade that was happening around the world, especially in America and Great Britain, they sold themselves into slavery so they could win the slaves to Jesus Christ. They bought one-way tickets. That's a prisoner of hope. They said, my purpose is greater than my confines. My future is only made full when I'm doing what God called me to do. While the Protestants and the Catholics were duking it out over the Reformation, the Moravians had over 3,000 missionaries around the world. They become a prisoner of hope. What would you do to bring hope to someone else? What would you do? How can you chain yourself to hope? Jesus says that we're saved by his blood. Look what it says here in 1 Peter 1.18. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct. Now, I like the way it puts that, don't you? Aimless conduct. You ever had aimless conduct? What are you doing? I'm nothing. What are you thinking, nothing? Aimless. You're redeemed by, from aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. That's kind of religion, isn't it? Religion kind of goes through the motions sometimes. It's kind of, you know, mindless, endless, where's that thing going? But relationship is so different. You were redeemed out of religion that you might be into relationship, but it's by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. And guess what? You're rescued from hell. We don't talk a lot about hell anymore, do we? It's almost like, well, just don't talk about that. Maybe it'll go away. I think most Christians are practical atheists. And here's what I mean. They ultimately think everybody's going to be okay. And that God really wouldn't send anybody to hell. And they live their life that way. Because if we really believe there was a hell and there really was a heaven and you had to make a choice to get there, wouldn't you warn your best friend about it? True story of a prisoner in the 1800s. He was visited by the chaplain. Chaplain was, this prisoner was actually on, uh, on death's row and he was going to face his own execution for crimes he had committed against, uh, against England. And the chaplain went in there and he began to read scriptures to the prisoner. And the prisoner said, don't read me any scriptures. He says, because you don't believe them yourself. He said, what do you mean I don't believe them? I believe everything in this. He said, do you believe that man without Christ will go to hell? Yes, I do then why aren't you crawling across broken glass all over London to tell the story? 
You keep your gospel. I'll keep mine. What do we really believe? Listen to what it says here in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered for sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's me and you, that he might bring us to God. The only way we get to God is by Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached the gospel to the spirits in prison. This is really interesting because the word there, uh, preached, is actually the word gospel. He preached the gospel. The spirits in prison, what prison? What was Jesus doing in the three days between the time of his death and the time of his resurrection? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us that he descended and he spoke and he brought good news. To who? To the righteous dead. Remember the story of rich man and Lazarus? Okay, Lazarus was the righteous dead. Jesus went and gave the gospel, and he said, you no longer have to be in the place of the dead. You will be in the place of life. You're going to have life and have it more abundantly. I'm taking you out of the grave. I'm taking you out of death. I'm taking you into, I'm taking you to the place of hope and joy and power. I want you to become a prisoner of hope. How many of you would like to become a prisoner of hope today? Let me show you what happens when you become a prisoner of hope. You are anchored to hope when you don't give up. When you don't give up, you're saying, I don't know what's going on in my life. I don't know what God is up to, but I am not giving up. You're anchored to hope when you focus on your dreams and not your disappointments. You become a prisoner of hope. When you let God fight your battles and you quit fighting your battles, you become a prisoner of hope. How many of you want to become that kind of a prisoner, amen? How many of you want to be anchored to hope? That's when your setbacks turn into comebacks because you're anchored to hope. When you don't become bitter in life, but you become better, you're anchored to hope. When you stand when everyone else is giving up, you become a prisoner of hope. When you love others, When others hate, you become a prisoner of hope. You see, Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, not just to take us to heaven, not just to keep us from hell, but to make us better people, better students, better moms and dads, better workers, better owners of of companies. He came to make us better people all the way around so that we thrive and so that people said, what's the explanation of your life? I don't hear you complaining. I don't hear you bitter. I don't see any of these things in your life. I see generosity. I see joy. I see all these things. What is it? I am anchored to hope. And guess what? Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. He's called the blessed hope in Scripture. Let's stand together. I want to ask you just to pray a prayer with me. If, if you're not certain if you know Christ today, I want to give you that opportunity to receive him as your Savior and your Lord. A prayer like this one can bring you into the kingdom if it's, if it's spoken with faith, with honesty, before the Lord. Let's just bow our heads and pray this prayer. You can pray it right out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I love you, and I believe you rose from the dead. I believe your word is true that you will save me now. So save me, Lord Jesus. Send your spirit in my heart and write my name in the book of life. In your name I pray, amen. Now we're gonna sing a song. As we sing this song, if that was your prayer, 
I want you just to, just to speak out, just give him glory for what he's done. Thank him for saving your soul, amen? And just say, God, I want to be a prisoner of hope. I want to be tied and anchored to you and everything in my life. Let it go back to you, Lord Jesus. Let's sing together.